You're listening to the Warrior Priest Podcast. And this is the Warrior Priest Podcast, midweek debrief number 132, and I'm the Warrior Priest, Don Riley. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Thank you, as always, for your time and attention. Thank you, especially to everyone who supports the show. If you would like to support the show and contribute to what I do here, you can go to Anchor FM, Warrior Priest Podcast, and click the support button and buy me a cup of coffee. That being said, before I begin the podcast, just an update so you know where I'm at of late and what is happening here at Warrior Priest Headquarters. Last weekend, my 12-year-old son collapsed twice, Saturday morning, passed out, had true seizures for approximately 30 seconds. The second time that this happened then, I came home from the gym, took him to the emergency room where he was checked in and then run through a series of tests over the course of six hours that day. The good news is that neurologically, nothing was discovered in the MRI, nothing cardiovascular was discovered from EKG, blood tests, urine tests. So there is nothing after six hours of tests that could explain why or what happened to him, why he collapsed, why he passed out, why he suffered true seizures, why he was continuously disoriented. So that's good news that it wasn't neurological, cardiovascular, but that's also the bad news then that we don't know why it happened. He continued to have micro seizures throughout Sunday, was disoriented through Monday, and it has only been in the last 12 hours or so that he has begun to be more like himself, even though he sleeps now continuously. And we have appointments scheduled at the Children's Hospital in St. Paul in the coming weeks to meet with neurologists, doctors, and other specialists to do more tests to discover what caused the collapse and if it's going to continue to happen, if it was an anachronism. But as any parent knows, when your child struggles, when they fall ill, when they are diagnosed with a disease, or in this case, when you don't know why this event occurred, the illusion of safety and protection is stripped away. And you are left vulnerable, weak, impotent, actually, because there is nothing you can do to help them. You can make them as comfortable as possible. You can do everything within your power, within your skills and abilities to build them back up to full health. But ultimately, nothing you do can help them. If there is no diagnosis and therefore no prognosis, it is like trying to find a light switch in the dark. You live on hope, which of course means fear, because when we hope, we are looking to the future, and therefore we are looking at something that isn't real yet, and therefore something that is outside of our control, and this stirs up fear and anxiety and insecurity in us. Because other than the past, the future reveals 
to us that our hope is often misplaced, that we do not have control, that we are not masters of our own destiny. We may hold the rudder to the ship, but we do not control the currents. We do not control the weather. And ultimately, we do not control the ship. It is beyond our control. Likewise, then, in those moments, for those of us who are people of faith, to be confronted with God's hiddenness in a child's suffering, you are met with an indifferent, incomprehensible power, somewhat akin to staring at the ocean and contemplating the profundity that is just the ocean. It is indifferent to you, whether you live or you die. It is incomprehensible to us. All that the ocean contains, all that it holds within itself, all that it means, all that it does for us. And that is what it's like to be under the hand of God in your struggles. When you sit next to your child and all you can do is hold their hand, the reality and the weight of your own impotence to protect them, to save them, to cure them, it is overwhelming and it leaves one raw, reduced to a primal level of fear, anger, agony, compassion. So I prayed for eight hours on Saturday, prayed without ceasing, as the psalmist writes, crying out to God in my fear and my anger with words that were so, they came from such a deep place that I was unable to think or to do anything else. So I sat and I prayed until he was home and in bed. And then I sat next to him and prayed more. So now we wait. Now we pray. Now we hope and fear the outcome. Hope for the best, fear the worst, and accept that in the present tense, all that we can do is what we do every day. Protect, defend, comfort, care, love, forgive, embrace, walk with each of our children so that they know whether today is their last day or our last day, or whether that day is yet to come. They are loved, and we are beloved by them. And in the end, for us anyways, that's all that matters. All that matters, all that gives life meaning, is to love, love unconditionally, without limit or measure, love in a way that wrecks you, that makes you afraid because of 
your love and how much, how total your love is for another person. Because I think, at least for myself, if I had never experienced that kind of love, I could not say that my life is complete and that should I die today, I die satisfied and grateful that I was allowed the gift of true love. And I think true love is a rare thing. I think it's always been a rare thing. That's why we covet it. That's why we write poetry and sing songs about it. That's why we devote our lives to hunting for it, to praying for it. And for those of us then who have been given this hideous gift of love, We can't live without it, but we often pray that the cup would be taken from us. So I appreciate your prayers for my son, Hosea. I appreciate your support and your encouragement. It is well received. It is gladly received. It's difficult for me to speak intimately about what happens in our home and to share my personal life with others, especially strangers. So for me to do this is an act of will <laughs> and something I am trying to do more, to be more open and even more transparent about things that make me uncomfortable, such as discussing my vulnerabilities and weaknesses. But I have concluded anyways that to hold back is to deprive others of the knowledge that they are not alone in what they are thinking and feeling or what they are going through. So if I can do that for you who are listening, then I consider that a benefit of transparency and openness to let you know you're not alone. You're not the only one that has gone through this or is going through this or will go through this, but that this is a part of life. And so with that, I'll pivot to what I want to read today. I don't know if I'll get through all of it. I don't even know how much I'll commentate on it. It's a blog post that was given to me about nihilism, <laughs> about Tolkien and C.S. Lewis, because my friend knows that I am a fan of Tolkien and Lewis and that my project the past two years in particular has been drilling down into the roots of nihilism to understand what is happening in the United States at present and how it is going to lead us into a technocratic, nihilistic future. And all that goes with that, whether it be Agenda 21, 2025, or 2030, the Great Reset, the Fourth Industrial Revolution, as it's sometimes called, the roots of all of these things are in nihilism and in technocracy both of which I've spoken about at length in relation to Friedrich Nietzsche's warning about nihilism and other readings I've done and discussions, monologues that I have recorded here about the dangers of a technocratic, technocratic state. So I'd like to read this by N.S. Lyons. Again, I don't know how much I'll get through, but I'll include a link in the show notes. A Prophecy of Evil. Tolkien, Lewis, and technocratic nihilism. Which dystopian writer saw it all coming? 
of all the famous authors of the 20th century who crafted worlds meant as warnings, who has proved most prophetic about the afflictions of the 21st? George Orwell? Aldous Huxley? Kurt Vonnegut? Ray Bradbury? Each of these, among others, have proved far too disturbingly prescient about many aspects of our present, as far as I'm concerned. But it could be that none of them were quite as far-sighted as the fairy tale spinners. C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien, fast friends and fellow members of the Inklings, the famous club of pioneering fantasy writers at Oxford in the 1930s and 40s. They're not typically thought of as dystopian authors. They certainly never claimed the title. After all, they wrote tales of fantastical adventure, heroism, and mythology that have delighted children and adults ever since. Not prophecies of boots stamping on human faces forever. And yet, their stories and nonfiction essays contain warnings that might have struck most surely, more surely, to the heart of our emerging 21st century dystopia than any other. The disenfranchisement and demoralization of a world produced by the foolishly blinkered quote-unquote debunkers of the intelligentsia, the catastrophic corruption of genuine education, the inevitable collapse of dominating ideologies of pure materialist rationalism and progress into pure subjectivity and nihilism, the inherent connection between the loss of any objective value and the emergence of a perverse techno-state, obsessively seeking first total control over humanity, and then, in the end, the final abolition of humanity itself. Tolkien and Lewis foresaw all of the darkest winds that now gather in growing intensity today. But ultimately, the shared strength of both authors may have also been something even more straightforward, a willingness to speak plainly and openly about the existence and nature of evil. Mankind, they saw, could not resist opening the door to the dark, even with the best of intentions. And so they offered up a way to resist it. The practical result of education in the spirit of the Green Book must be the destruction of the society which accepts it. Now, when Lewis delivered this line in a series of February 1943 lectures that would later be published in his short work, The Abolition of Man, it must have sounded rather ridiculous. Again, the quote, The practical result of education in the spirit of the Green Book must be the destruction of the society which accepts it. Now, Britain was literally in a war for its survival. Its cities being bombed, its soldiers killed in a great struggle with Hitler's Germany, and Lewis was trying to sound the air raid siren over an education textbook. But Lewis was urgent about the danger coming down the road, a menace he saw as just as threatening as Nazism, and in fact deeply intertwined with it. Given that, quote, to process which, if not checked, will abolish man, goes on apace among communists and Democrats no less than among fascists. The methods may, at first, differ in brutality, but many a mild-eyed scientist in Pensnez, many a popular dramatist, many an amateur philosopher in our midst, means in the long run just the same as the Nazi rulers of Germany. Traditional values are to be debunked, 
and mankind to be cut into some fresh shape at will, which must, by hypothesis, be an arbitrary will of some few lucky people. Unfortunately, as Lewis would later lament, abolition was almost totally ignored by the public at the time. But now that our society seems to be truly well along in the process of self-destruction, kicked off by education in the spirit of the Green Book, it might be about time we all grasped what he was trying to warn us about. This Green Book that Lewis viewed as such a symbol of menace was his polite pseudonym for a fashionable contemporary English textbook actually titled The Control of Language. This textbook was itself a popularization for children of the trendy new postmodern philosophy of logical positivism, as advanced in another book, I.A. Richards's Principles of Literary Criticism. Logical positivism saw itself as championing purely objective scientific knowledge, and was determined to prove that all metaphysical priors were not only false, but wholly meaningless. In truth, however, it was as Lewis quickly realized, actually a philosophy of pure subjectivism, and thus, as we shall see, a sure straight path out into the complete void. In Abolition, Lewis zeroes in on one seemingly innocuous passage in The Control of Language to begin illustrating this point. It relates a story told by the English poet Samuel Taylor Coleridge, in which two tourists visit a majestic waterfall. Gazing upon it, one calls it sublime. The other says, yes, it's pretty. Coleridge is disgusted by the latter. But as Lewis recounts of this story, the authors of the textbook merely conclude, quote, When the man said this is sublime, he appeared to be making a remark about the waterfall. Actually, he was not making a remark about the waterfall, but a remark about his own feelings. What he was saying was really, I have feelings associated in my mind with the word sublime. Or shortly, I have sublime feelings. This confusion is continually present in language as we use it. We appear to be saying something very important about something, and actually, we are only saying something about our own feelings. For Lewis, this momentous little paragraph contains all of the seeds necessary for the destruction of humanity. No schoolboy, Lewis writes, will be able to resist the suggestion brought to bear upon him by that word, only. He thinks he is doing his English prep and has no notion that ethics, theology, and politics are all at stake. For while the authors may hardly know what they are doing to the boy, and he cannot know what is being done to him, in fact they have put into his mind an assumption, which ten years hence, its origin forgotten and its presence unconscious, will condition him to take one side in a controversy which he has never recognized as a controversy at all. This controversy, controversy, that controversy is the reality of any objective value independent of the self. As Lewis argues, the, assur the assertion that the waterfall only produces subjective and arbitrary feelings in the viewer is a revolutionary one, because until quite modern times, all teachers and even all men believed the universe to be such that certain emotional reactions on our part could be either congruous or incongruous to it. Believed, in fact, 
that objects did not merely receive but could merit our approval or disapproval, our reverence or our contempt. That is, feelings were a response, a fitting or ill-fitting response, to an objective or transcendent reality. To feel awe at something is to recognize the independent existence of a magnificence beyond the subjective interpretation of one's own head. The feelings which make a man call an object sublime are not sublime feelings, but feelings of veneration. If this is sublime is to be reduced at all to a statement about the speaker's feelings, the proper translation would be, I have humble feelings. To say that the cataract is sublime means saying that our emotion of humility is appropriate or ordinate to the reality, and thus to speak of something else besides the emotion, just as to say that a shoe fits is to speak not only of shoes, but of feet. This something else that exists as a reality independent from and prior to the subjective is what Lewis, drawing deliberately on a non-Christian tradition to point to its universality, labels as the Tao or the way. The Tao represents an independent reality of values, just as concrete as the independent reality of objects. Much as Alexander Hamilton argued in 1775 that, quote, the sacred rights of mankind are not to be rummaged for among old parchments or musty records, unquote, but, to continue the quote, are written as with a sunbeam in the whole volume of human nature by the hand of divinity itself and can never be erased or obscured by moral power. Lewis is adamant that at least the outlines of the Tao are observable by all those capable of paying attention. Marshalling an extensive appendix of common, traditional, moral injunctions from religions and cultures across the world, he argues that it is this reality to which all human morality and ethics, with greater or lesser success, conform. For while the value systems of human societies, or at least those inherited from before our modern age, might have many outward differences, what is common to them all is the doctrine of objective value the belief that certain attitudes are really true and others really false, to the kind of thing the universe is and the kinds of things that we are. To rebel against the doctrine of objective value and suggest, as Nietzsche had, that man could piece together or devise his own values from nothing was not only pure arrogance, but in the end, impossible. The thing which I have called for convenience the Tao, Lewis writes, in which others may call natural law or traditional morality or the first principles of practical reason or even the first platitudes, is not one among a series of possible systems of value. It is the sole source of all value judgments. If it is rejected, all value is rejected. If any value is retained, it is retained. The effort to refute it and raise a new system of value in its place is self-contradictory. There has never been and never will be, a radically new judgment of value in the history of the world. Rather, what purport to be new systems, or as they now call them, ideologies, all consist of fragments from the Tao itself, arbitrarily wrenched from their context in the whole, and then swollen to madness in their isolation, yet still owing to the Tao and to it alone such validity as they possess. The rebellion of new ideologies against the Tao is a rebellion of the branches against the tree. 
If the rebels could succeed, they would find that they had destroyed themselves. The human mind has no more power of inventing a new value than of imagining a new primary color. And yet Lewis was indeed concerned that the rebels were in fact near to succeeding. That an idea swollen to madness in isolation from the Tao was on the verge of destroying not only itself, but the whole of mankind. When Lewis made a second go at explaining this evil, this time in his powerful science fiction novel That Hideous Strength, which he described as a tall tale about devilry, with a serious point, which I have tried to make in my Abolition of Man, he chose a different approach. The plot, which involves the inhuman schemes of a shadowy global organization of scientists and bureaucrats, called the National Institute of Coordinated Experiments, which for short is NICE, N-I-C-E, pointedly focuses on the dangers not of radical subjectivism, but of its seeming opposite, the thirst for pure objectivity and orderliness. Why? What does this have to do with postmodern subjectivism? The answer to that reflects Lewis's true genius and Tolkien's. So now, on to Tolkien. That background noise is a snowplow because I live in Minnesota and it's November 16th, 2022, which means we got four inches of snow yesterday. But that being said, sorry, squirrel, distractions, dug the dog up. We move on from Lewis to Tolkien. The character of Sauron then. The great villain of Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings can seem rather simplistic to the uninitiated, or at least those who only watch the movies. He's a big, and he's a bad. And he seems to like the color black, and is determined to conquer and do evil stuff for reasons that are unclear. But in fact, Sauron's motives were deeply thought through by Tolkien, like every aspect of his cosmology, and are significantly more complex than might commonly be assumed. In the beginning, Sauron was one of the Maiar, the angels, and a servant of Aule, the, Val the Valar, a demigod or archangel of craftsmanship, similar to the Greek god Hephaestus. Hephaestus? Hephaestus. It's one of those names, depending on how you decline the diphthong. Sorry, I'm super distracted today, I understand. I apologize. Hephaestus. We'll go with that. We'll split the difference. Sauron was also a craftsman whose specialty was knowledge and techniques, and for this won great honor and acclaim, but above all, Tolkien recorded in his notes, quote, he loved order and coordination and disliked all confusion and wasteful friction. It's this that drew him to the great enemy of heaven, the fallen archangel Melkor or Morgoth, whose will and power to effect his designs quickly and masterfully proved irresistible to Sauron. This led to his fall and his service as Melkor's greatest lieutenant, assisting his master with all of the deceits of his cunning. But even once his master was defeated, captured by the Valar and cast into the void beyond this world, leaving Sauron to his own designs, his motives for conquest and domination were, as far as he was concerned, wholly rational. Indeed, he still desired order above all things. His original desire for order for order, had really envisaged the good estate, especially physical well-being of his subjects. And all his ordering and planning and organization was intended for the good of all, 
Thus, he had gone the way of all tyrants, beginning well at least on the level that while desiring to order all things according to his own wisdom, he still at first considered the economic well-being of other inhabitants of earth. Inevitably, however, in time his plans, the idea coming from his own isolated mind, became the sole object of his will and an end, the end, in itself. In his book, The Psychology of Totalitarianism, the Belgian clinical psychologist Matthias Desmet broke down how generalized anxiety, often produced in part by overly mechanistic thinking, can lead to a narcissistic psychological need to exert more and more control over the external world, and ultimately to the delusional need to control all of reality itself. An individual or society's flight into this delusion this delusion's false security is a logical consequence of the psychological inability to deal with uncertainty and risk. For Sauron, the confusion and the friction he could not tolerate was the product of the unpredictability of the free will of other living beings. And so it was all the creatures of earth and their minds and wills that he desired to dominate. This led him to forge his own technological devices of total control. The rings of power and the one ring to rule them all. His single-minded need for order, swollen to madness in its isolation, had cut him off from humanity and from the Tao. Sauron is, of course, hardly the only one, including in our own world. Tempted by the Faustian dream of perfect order and control, Lewis had a name for these would-be Saurons. He called them the conditioners. To Lewis, the conditioners are the inevitable product of the ideology of pure objectivity promoted by the likes of the authors of the Green Book. The belief, absent the existence of the true objective value of the Tao, that any moral feelings or pangs of conscience are merely subjective experiences and what would today be called social constructs, while the real world is purely material and therefore purely mechanistic. To be purely objective is therefore, in this view, to focus only on the material and dismiss the rest as non-existent. Now this is Lewis writing. For the wise men of old, the cardinal problem had been how to conform the soul to reality and the solution had been knowledge, self-discipline, and virtue. For magic and today's applied sciences alike, the problem is how to subdue reality to the wishes of men the solution is a technique, and both in the practice of this technique are ready to do things hitherto regarded as disgusting and impious. But because of this objective view, there is nothing whatsoever to separate man from the material of the natural world, nothing that man permanently is. Man himself becomes material available to be manipulated and reshaped at will, just as the natural world can be manipulated and reshaped. And while it is in man's power to treat himself as a mere natural object and his own judgments of value as raw material for scientific manipulation to alter at will, Lewis warns that indeed if man chooses to treat himself as raw material, raw material he will be. In such a world in which techniques of technological control must come to be applied to man, just as they are applied to tree or iron, it is not mankind as a whole that will gain such power. Rather, inevitably, 
The power of man to make himself what he pleases means in truth the power of man to make other men what they please. And if what we call man's power over nature turns out to be a power exercised by some men over other men with nature as its instrument, then ultimately man's conquest of nature, if the dreams of some scientific planners are realized, means the rule of a few hundred men over billions upon billions of men. There neither is nor can be any simple increase of power on man's side. Each new power won by man is a power over man as well. How these few hundred men might behave is the subject at the heart of Lewis's vastly underrated novel, That Hideous Strength, which revolves around the National Institute of Coordinated Experiments. Essentially a huge NGO of scientists, sociologists, and other assorted expert planners that has managed to secure near total freedom of operations in Britain by arguing that the advancement of national and human progress and well-being require it to be granted complete license to conduct efficient scientific research and experiments in social engineering and technocratic governance. The novel follows the story's protagonist, Mark, as he is drawn deeper and deeper into the nice after it arrives to take over his little English college town and build a giant modernist headquarters on top of it. Simultaneously, Mark's wife, Jane, more wisely embarks on a path in the opposite direction. Mark is recruited into the nice, in part because, as a sociologist, he, unlike the rest of his fellow progressive academics, who have campaigned to bring the scientific institution to town, is able to quickly begin to grasp the real implications of the nice. Asked what he thinks the organization's purpose is, he replies that the important thing is not the big research grants or fancy new equipment, but the fact that it would have its own legal staff and its own police. The real thing is that this time we are going to get science applied to social problems and backed by the whole force of the state. Mark's recruiter, Lord Feverstone, excitably explains that this is quite right. It is the main question at the moment which side one is on, obscurantism or order. It does really look as if we now had the power to dig ourselves in as a species for a pretty staggering period to take control of our own destiny. If science is really given a free hand, it can now take over the human race and recondition it, make man a really efficient animal. And this means that, as he points out to Mark in a particularly telling exchange, quote, man has got to take charge of man. That means, remember, that some men have got to take charge of the rest. Which is another reason for cashing in on it as soon as one can. You and I want to be the people who do the taking charge, not the ones who are taken charge of. So what sort of thing do you have in mind? Quite simple and obvious things, at first. Sterilization of the unfit. Liquidation of backwards races. We don't want any dead weights. Selective breeding. Then real education, including prenatal education. By real education, I mean one that has no take-it-or-leave-it nonsense. A real education makes the patient what it wants infallibly. Whatever he or his parents try to do about it, of course, it'll have to be mainly psychological at first. But we will get on to biochemical conditioning in the end and direct manipulation of the brain. But this is stupendous, Feverstone. It is the real thing at last. A new type of man. And it's people like you 
who have got to begin to make him. This passage hints at Lewis's greatest fear. So far, human nature had proved itself impervious to change, no matter how strenuous the attempts at new education, thus making complete conditioning impossible, and so eventually bringing down every totalitarian scheme attempted. But as he writes in Abolition, in the future, with sufficient force and cunning, the power of technological control might conquer even this last fortress of humanity. He writes, Hitherto, the plans of the educationalists have achieved very little of what they attempted, but the man-molders of the new age will be armed with the powers of an omnicompetent state and an irresistible scientific technique, and we shall get at last a race of conditioners who really can cut out all posterity in what shape they please. And if the conditioners can succeed in this, there is no doubt they would then seek to optimize not only the physical nature of man, but his values, to craft a simulacrum of better artificial ones for the new man, beyond the Tao, beyond natural law, beyond morality. At this point, why shouldn't they attempt to do so? Values are now mere natural phenomena. Judgments of value are to be produced in the pupil as part of the conditioning. Whatever Tao there is will be the product not the motive of education. The conditioners have been emancipated from all that. It is one more part of nature which they have conquered. The ultimate springs of human action are no longer for them something given. The ultimate springs of human action are for them no longer something given. They have surrendered like electricity. It is the function of the conditioners to control, not to obey them. They know how to produce conscience, and to decide what kind of conscience they will produce. They themselves are outside, above. For we are assuming the last stage of man's struggle with nature. But one great question yet remains. From what source will these new values come? The conditioners will have freed themselves from the confines of the Tao, but unconstrained and untethered from any lodestar of fixed value, what then will be their purpose? What will motivate them? Will they even know? Human nature will be the last part of nature to surrender to man, Lewis predicted. The battle will then be won, but who precisely will have won it? One powerful literary device of that hideous strength is that Mark's journey takes him, a bit like Dante, through circle after circle of what he falsely believes each time to be the true inner circle of the nice each time moving one layer closer to the horrible truth or anti-truth of its real motives. And that is the conclusion to N.S. Lyon's article, A Prophecy of Evil, Tolkien, Lewis, and Technocratic Nihilism. I didn't offer any commentary because as I read, I thought that, well, that's what this article is, a commentary on particularly the Lord of the Rings and that hideous strength, which... If you've not read That Hideous Strength, I highly recommend it. It's short, it's powerful, it's profound. Very well-written, concise book by Lewis. And now that you understand the motive for him writing it and the subtext of the book, maybe then it even adds more weight to what he is driving at. Nihilism is the consequence of what is described in this article. 
It doesn't matter what we believe. In fact, it is important that we are psychologically conditioned, even in the womb, as he points out, even through biochemical manipulation of our brains. It is important that our values, what we would call our virtues or our morals or even natural law itself, be conditioned by the conditioners so that we are not expected to understand. We are definitely not expected to discern, but rather to simply accept and obey, consume, digest, defecate, consume, digest, defecate without end. Simply a piece of the machine. And so I leave you with that today to think about where are we at right now, 2022? Obviously, all the talk of the Green New Deal all the talk of you will, you will own nothing and be happy, all the talk of replacing meat with crickets and pea proteins, all the talk of we have to save the world. It's a climate crisis. Obviously, this is what Lewis is describing and what Lyons addresses at the end, which is that once we have conquered man, the final enemy is nature. If we can conquer human nature, and we have claimed the conditioners, then the last obstacle to total domination, to our total control of reality, is nature itself. And so, really what's happening, and what has been happening since 1969, when the Club of Rome met and invented the climate crisis, when Earth Day was started in 1978, I believe, all the talk of holes in the ozone layer melting, polar ice caps, the glaciers melting, the seas rising, all this cataclysmic, apocalyptic doomsaying about the climate crises, at root is not about the climate, but rather it is the conditioners. Foisting their propaganda upon us in order to enslave us and to make us drones. And our responsibility as drones, then, is to participate in the destruction of nature itself. They do not want to save the earth. They want to defeat it. They want to bring it under their thumb. They want nature to surrender to them. And they want us to do it for them. Because that's ultimately what we discover about the conditioners, as Lewis calls them. They are weak They are cowards. They have no power except the power of the state and the violent arm of the state, its military and law enforcement. But these men and women who are conditioners, who have all but mastered the art of subverting us, brainwashing and indoctrinating us and bringing us under their control. And I mean that truly. That's not hyperbolic. I think in 2022, what I've seen is that in Brazil, for example, they are rioting in the streets because of the elections. In Iran, there is a people's revolution because they're sick and tired of this theocratic totalitarian state ruling over them. Everywhere in the world that you see these revolutions, you see people rising up and protesting or rebelling at the cost of their own lives. 
And then you look at the United States and you look at the last two elections and how they were obviously rigged and how they were obviously fraudulent and that we do not have two parties, but one uniparty and that they are in collusion with each other. They're laundering money by way of FTX through the Ukraine back into DNC coffers. And the people of the United States do nothing. We do nothing. Why? Our politicians, our political system is just as corrupt as that of Brazil, Iran, Yemen, Germany, and other places. But we don't rise up. We don't revolt. Why not? Because they control us. The conditioners have conditioned us to not rise up, to not revolt, to not even utter a murmur of protest, but rather is to simply shrug and go on with life and accept our fate, accept what the conditioners give us, and then we say thank you. We say thank you to the social engineering, to the abortions, to the euthanizations, to the eugenics programs. We say thank you to the human trafficking and the child rape. We say thank you that we raise young boys and girls to believe that they are meat, that they are products to be consumed, to be paid for. Our society is degenerate and perverse because our people have been conditioned to believe that their life has no higher meaning, that there is no such thing as objective truth, objective values, objective morality, that tradition is a symbol of systemic racism, that we must allow our children to be indoctrinated by the state, to be chemically and physically, surgically castrated, to have their breasts cut off, calling it gender reassignment surgery. We are rewarding mental illness in our society and treating it as a virtue. They've won. There is nothing to fight back against anymore. The conditioners have conditioned us. We are slaves. They won. And the few of us who stand against them, we do it on principle. We're not blind idealists. We don't believe in pie-in-the-sky scenarios. Because short of the Lord Jesus Christ coming back, it's not getting better. We're on the precipice. We're going over the edge. And there is no barrel. They're riding us face down over the edge. We are going to break their fall. And so as we switch to a digital global currency, which now they are quote-unquote experimenting with all over the place, as more and more people are brought under the control of the state, as more and more technology and science is made to be our masters, as physical objective reality is eroded and degenerated day after day after day through the propaganda that is pumped out through the mass media and social media, through all the AI and all of the bots that control what we see, what we read, what we hear. How do we know, for example, how do we know that 80% of what we see on the TV and consume online isn't manufactured by artificial intelligence, that it's not even a real person talking. It's not a real post from a real person sitting at a computer. It's all AI. It's all predictive AI. It's all quantum computing. 
How do we know that the people on the other end are even real people? And how do we know they haven't been brainwashed? How do we know they have been conditioned? How do we know they're not bad actors? We don't. We blindly go about our lives accepting, without question, that the people on the TV have our best interest at hand, that the conditioners, those who pull the levers of social control and conditioning, are beneficent entities. When we know they are not, there are too many people on the planet, they say. We are the carbon that they must reduce, they say. We must not own anything, they say. We must eat what they tell us to eat and drink what they tell us to drink. Speak and think the way that they tell us to speak and think. To go where they control our goings. Everything they're doing is an attempt to dehumanize us, to strip us of our humanity, so that we are more and more easily controlled and manipulated, to the point that now we gladly listen to them and participate in our own deaths. We are suiciding ourselves in the name of public health and well-being. Why? Because they told us to, and without question then, we do it. It's tragic. It's demonic. It's evil. And yet, we're told it's for the good of humanity. And so I highly recommend, I strongly recommend, that you take a, t- take a moment, take some time, click the link in the show notes, read the article for yourself, chew on it, process it. It's very well written in my opinion. It's a nice, quick summary of both Tolkien and Lewis's works. I'll be posting quotes from this article to Instagram and Facebook uh, in the coming weeks. But as I noted before the election in last week's episode, we have to do it ourselves. We have to build our own culture and our own communities. We have to teach people. We have to bring them alongside of us. We have to show them the receipts. We have to show them the texts. We have to open them up to the possibility that what they are hearing and seeing is false. But in the end, that's all we can do. Live free. Take care of ourselves. Do our best within the context and the conditions in which we live to not shut down, to not give up, to not surrender, but rather, as I've said before, to hold ourselves to the standard that Jesus himself teaches us, to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. So when we took our son to the ER, the hostile hospital as we call it, We were told if he didn't wear a mask and he didn't get a COVID test, they would not treat him, even though he had no symptoms of any kind of illness, other than the fact that he collapsed, passed out, and went into seizures, which last I checked aren't symptoms of COVID. But they said, we're not going to check him in. We're not going to process him. We're not going to treat him if he doesn't do this. So we played their game and we were kind We did our best to be loving and forgiving to the useful idiots who work there, who are, as they say, just just doing my job. But we understand that we are in enemy territory. In fact, as I said to my wife, we treat the hospital and the staff 
the same way that the Native Americans treated white settlers when they needed medical care for one of their children back in the day. We need your help, but we have no illusions that given the opportunity, you will watch us die without so much as shedding a tear. That's where we are at today. At least that's where we are at, where I live at, in the communist state of Minnesota, where a majority of the state just goes along to get along and blindly obeys their masters, does what they're told without question, doesn't question the moral good or evil of what they are doing or what they refuse to do. They accept election results without question. They accept state mandates without exception. They welcome more surveillance, more laws, more state oversight, more state programs, higher taxes, all the while hiding the truth. Hiding the truth about the deaths, hiding the truth about medical malpractice, hiding the truth about who is and who isn't abiding by the law. Because the conditioners run things, and they have conditioned us to be grateful like slaves being thrown a crust of bread from the master's table. We are grateful that the masters show us deference, throwing us a crust of bread, a little stimulus check, a day off now and then for a holiday. It's all conditioning. It's all brainwashing. We're all a part of it. Any of us who carry around a phone or an iPad or sit in front of a laptop, any of us who are plugged in, We're a part of the matrix. And so we can either unplug or we can choose to stay plugged in. But if we're going to unplug, just like in the movie, we have to go back in every now and then to warn others, to try and rescue others, to do what we can, or as the poet says, to fight against the dying of the light. We are the light in the darkness. We are the ones who ask the critical questions. We are the ones who do the research. We are the ones who care about other people and about their welfare, their health and well-being. What is good, what is objectively good, that's what we care about, the truth. But let us not become so obsessed with the truth, big T, truth, that we forget how to be compassionate and kind. Because all of us, we don't have the whole story. We don't know all the answers. Life is incomprehensible. And the older you get, the more you become aware of the fact of you don't really know all that much. And so let's do it with humility, but let's do it with the brutal, tough love of those who are concerned about the truth, because the truth is about goodness, wellness, sanity, sobriety, and freedom. So again, I recommend that you go back and read this for yourself. And in doing so, I hope that it takes you in a different direction, a good direction, a new direction, or possibly if you're already going in a direction. I'm sorry. It's been a rough week. My mind is not clear. And so I apologize if I'm stumbling over my words today more than usual. I guess what I'm trying to say, and I'm going on a long time saying it, is be good to each other. Love each other, but be honest and truthful with each other. I think that's the only way forward. I think that's the truth. And I think that's what everybody is hungry and thirsty for.
because they've been so conditioned by the conditioners, they don't even know how to ask for it. They're sheep without a shepherd. So be good to each other. Be kind. Love each other. But do it in a tough way. Be brutal, brutally honest, brutally kind, brutally compassionate, brutally loving, and brutally honest and truthful. And that being said, then, thank you. Thank you for listening today. I appreciate you. I appreciate all you do to support this podcast and, and to show up for me. I appreciate it. I appreciate all the prayers for our family, especially my son. I appreciate all the support. And I know that no matter what happens, we will be taken care of. And I will see him again. So I'll talk to you again real soon, Space Monkeys. Peace.